This series contains graphic discussion and details of violence, sexual assault, and homicide. Listener discretion is strongly advised. All of the forensic art and portraits will be shared on our social media. Please take a moment to review the images and see if you can help identify the victims. And one last note. We have an announcement playing at the end of the episode. Please be sure to listen so that you don't miss it. This is The Fall Line. Well, tell me about this girl. What does she look like? She was kind of thin, dark skin, about 40 years old when she was out there hustling. I think she was a drug addict because she wouldn't get out there. How tall was she? She was about 5'5", five, 5'3". Five, five, and how she much do you think she weighed? She weighed about 110, 120. Okay. What about her did you know? The boy came, she left with her son. And she called him over there. And he came over, hey, hey, he shook my hand and everything. Yeah. Where do you eventually take her, her body to? I was, I was headed toward California. Mm-hmm. So as I drove out of Las Vegas, I, didn't, I seen a motel and a road leading up to the motel. And I said, there's a lot of bushes and brushes us beside the road before you got to that motel. That's where I dropped, pulled up her body out and rolled it down there. And I heard a secondary roll of noise. That meant she was still rolling. We all hope that we'll recognize a monster when we see one. But that's the trouble. The monsters are people, too. They blend in. They like to walk at the edges of society, where they won't be seen, and where their victims won't be missed. On September 5, 2012, a sick old man was arrested at a Kentucky homeless shelter. He was 72 then, and he's 80 now. And he's frailer than he once was, with multiple health issues. Diabetes, a heart condition... He often has to use a wheelchair. In interviews, he is generally friendly. He calls women baby. He signs letters with God bless. Talk to him long enough, though, and he'll get around to the killing. He knows what visitors want to learn about, and it's what he likes to discuss. That way, he can relive his long life, crime by crime, woman by woman. They found him in Kentucky, but he wasn't there long. According to the FBI, he was extradited to California, supposedly to face a narcotics charge. But he was suspected of much more. At the time of that arrest, investigators were able to take a DNA sample. And then LAPD matched this elderly man to three unsolved murders, all from the 1980s, when he would have been in his late 40s. It's said that some serial killers slow down as they age, but not him. He was and is a sexual sadist, and he always knew who he could get away with killing. That old man is Samuel Little. After he was sentenced in Los Angeles, other departments began to question him, 
and he started talking, confession after confession, with nearly 100 victims and about 60 of those confirmed. He is the most prolific serial killer the United States has ever seen. The Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, held the title before him. Ridgway killed an estimated 71 women over roughly 16 years. Like Little, he knew who to hunt. But authorities knew about the Green River Killer long before Ridgway was actually arrested. Samuel Little, he didn't have an official nickname, not like the Golden State Killer. Some L.A. cops called him the Choke and Stroke Killer, a crude reference to the masturbation that accompanied his murders, but that hasn't caught on in the media. Frightening names sell papers. Son of Sam, the Zodiac, the Boston Strangler. With little, nothing. He was an unknown presence. He drifted in and out. Sometimes, no one even noticed his victims were gone. Little murdered in at least 19 states, and there are victims who still need identification all over the map. The scope of these crimes is bigger than the Southeast, much bigger. Though the Southeastern victims are who we'll cover in these episodes, know there are more women, unmatched confessions, and Jane Doe's whose names he didn't bother to learn. Their killer has become famous, but the victims are largely indistinguishable. Portrait after portrait, produced by their murderer. He makes sure to sign all the pictures. Word is, he's taking art commissions from his prison cell. And people will study him. What will they find? What's there in the beginning is there in the end. He is violent. He has a fixation on necks. Something that he believes began in grade school. And he is comfortable treating every other person on earth as an object. And yet, we will learn every angle of his life eventually. And his name will be remembered. But what about the women? Victims were often, but not always, sex workers. Some used drugs. Many, but not all, were black women. If their bodies were found, they were occasionally listed as accidental deaths or undetermined cause. The clear homicide cases stayed cold, though suspicion was sometimes cast on those who knew them. And that's if the victims could be identified at all. The term sex work was coined in 1978, but has only recently made its way into cultural consciousness. That happened around the time it became recognized that sex workers have often been treated by authorities and media as the less dead. That is, the victims whose cases were deemed unimportant because of the nature of their work. The very existence of the term, the less dead, the fact that we need it to describe a problem, is a good place to start, to start bringing the lives and health of sex workers into focus. And ultimately, the killer doesn't, or rather shouldn't, matter. He's gotten plenty of attention. He loves it. What else can you learn about that? He had a hard childhood, and he is a hard adult, too. He sometimes signs his letters from, quote, Mr. Sam and his girls, as if he had collected them. He told one correspondent that, quote, They are no ones but mine. I own all of them, 
and no one can have them but me. He calls them, quote, angels in heaven and says, quote, I love them and they love me. And he gets to talk because he's handing over information to investigators. They need what he can tell them, and they need it soon. He's a sick old man. Old age has slowed him down, but he is still a predator. He likes power, and we don't want to give him any more. We have to tell you some things to connect the threads of the stories, the women's stories, to explore the confessions he offered up to Texas Ranger James Holland. And we can start with his endless traveling. As long as he kept moving, his crimes appeared unconnected. Throughout the second half of the 20th century, Little drove a white Cadillac and a gold Pontiac Le Mans and a Lincoln Continental. He often traveled with a woman named Jean, a much older girlfriend who supported them both by shoplifting. For a while, a teenage boy traveled with them too. Alone or with his traveling companions, Little rode the highways and interstates, moving from one cheap hotel to another. Some towns, like Miami, he visited again and again. Others only had to suffer him once. And he didn't do much to cover his tracks. He often left bodies at the scene of the crime, along roads or half-buried in hard ground or dragged a few yards into the wetlands. He wasn't a criminal mastermind, and yet he knew who he could get away with killing. He walked softly along the margins. He bet on apathy, and he was right. He was arrested dozens of times, starting in his early adolescence. Author Jillian Lauren compiled a list of at least 21 charges. The worst included violence, rape, aggravated assault, assault with great bodily harm, armed robbery. The list goes on. This was before any murder charge. In total, before his California conviction, he served about 10 years in prison. In 1982, he was accused of murder, but a grand jury declined to indict him in Mississippi. Then he was acquitted once again in Florida. And two years later, across the country, in San Diego, he strangled two women who both survived. According to the Los Angeles Times, he served less than three years for both attacks. He was out by early February of 1987, and he would kill and kill and kill into the 21st century. He may have killed right up until his final arrest in 2012. Nowadays, Little looks for all the world like a grandfather. Not that that should matter. Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, looks frail during his hearings, too. Everyone gets old. Little is just sicker than most. He is what Henry Lee Lucas pretended to be. A man with no fixed address, killing when he wanted, leaving cold cases, sometimes even uninvestigated cases, in his wake. As of August 2019, the Radford FGCU serial killer database entry for Samuel Little was sparse. It lacked most of the information available on other killers, like background, family, military service, IQ scores. When Jillian Lauren's forthcoming book on Little is eventually released, perhaps those gaps will be filled in. 
In our cultural imagination, the modern serial killer is a man between 20 and 40 years old. He is nearly always white. There are exceptions like Eileen Warnos or Richard Ramirez or Lonnie Franklin Jr. But until the Samuel Little story broke, a Google search for serial killers would return a gallery of similar faces, nearly all adult, white, and male. But there are many others who do not fit those parameters. Samuel Little is only one example. Another assumption made is that serial killers principally target and murder victims of their own race. We've mentioned that fact before right here on the show. Everyone knows this isn't universally true. Besides Samuel Little, Gary Ridgway is an example of a murderer who killed women of all races. Ridgway's primary interest was occupation, because he knew he could target sex workers. And because they had to work in the margins, Ridgway knew how to make himself seem safe. Sometimes he brought his young son along with him to wait in the car while his father committed murder in an alley or a little ways off on a rural road. Sometimes just driving around with a car seat in his vehicle was enough. It created a suggestion of safety. And when sex work is criminalized, that kind of gamble can be forced. Get in a car, hoping it won't be the last time. Any subculture that operates outside the law, or even within the law, but under restrictions of prejudice and hate, that's going to be an easy place to find victims. Think of Bruce MacArthur. He was a quiet 60-something landscaper living in Toronto. He was known as a fixture in the gay scene and often picked up younger men. Sometimes he used dating apps where he described a preference for, quote, submissive men. His conquests were mostly South Asian and Middle Eastern men, some of whom were immigrants to Canada, some of whom were closeted. Some weren't reported missing. Others were, but often no one knew where to look for them, particularly if they hadn't been out to family and friends. At least one victim was a sex worker and homeless. Authorities were slow to respond to reports of missing men, and it would be years before MacArthur was arrested. His earliest confirmed murder was in 2010, and he killed until 2017. That's when a task force was formed to investigate the mounting death toll. MacArthur was finally arrested in 2018. And according to the CBC, investigators found body parts of his victims buried in the landscaping boxes that were among his business supplies. It took Bruce MacArthur nearly a decade to be caught, but he might have been operating longer than that. And Samuel Little... He got away with murder for 42 years, give or take. After his extradition from Kentucky, Samuel Little was held in California. There, he was eventually convicted of three Los Angeles murders, those of Carol Alford, Guadalupe Apodaca, and Audrey Nelson, in 2014. It was DNA that finally got him in those cases. His skin cells and his semen were found at the crime scenes, way back in the 1980s. Technology and backlogs finally caught up with him. But those weren't the only victims. There were more, and investigators were certain, even before the confessions began. 
Most of Samuel Little's crimes have come to light thanks to a Texas Ranger, James Holland. He managed to form a relationship with Little and helped other agencies interview the killer. According to numerous outlets, the two men have formed a sort of friendship, calling each other by nicknames and developing a rapport that includes inside jokes and shared snacks. It's clear this is an interrogation tactic, and it seems to be effective. Though Holland declined to comment for this series, it's easy to get a sense of his role. When a case is resolved, Holland is name-checked by reporters and law enforcement. Some seem amazed that he's been able to get answers from Little. According to the LA Times, Holland is the person who convinced Little to draw his victim's portraits in the first place. Holland knew that Little considered himself an artist, and he used that information well. But Holland isn't the only person who's helped reconstruct the crimes of Samuel Little. According to the FBI's news feed, the use of VICAP was instrumental in connecting Little to murders across the USA. VICAP, or Violent Crime Apprehension Program, is a database maintained by law enforcement. But it's not exhaustive. Agencies are not mandated to report, and having comprehensive data is absolutely essential in connecting cases. Kevin Fitzsimmons, VICAP Supervisory Crime Analyst, was quoted on the official webpage as saying, quote, The biggest lesson in this case is the power of information sharing. These connections all started in our database of violent crime. But it's not just investigators who've contributed in compiling and sometimes even resolving these murders. So many others have lent their skills. In fact, a records bureau chief down in Florida managed to piece together information vital to some of the southeastern cases. Along with California, Florida is the state where Little killed most often. On New Year's Day, 1971, he was 30 years old. And down in the Everglades, Little buried the woman now known as his first victim. Her name was Mary Brosley. He'd met her in Miami at a bar. She was found 23 days later, but wasn't identified until 2017. According to WUSA 9, Little told investigators about the murder during his confessions. He reportedly said that he'd never again tried to bury someone in Florida. The ground was just too hard. But he didn't stop killing in the state. And a woman named Linda Brown was able to reassemble parts of his trail. Linda Brown spoke with us in 2019. She's the record bureau chief in Gainesville, Florida. She's worked there for over 30 years. She told us that her job includes many responsibilities, including management of all incoming records, of archives, of public requests. We became aware of Brown during our research when we found a few news stories in 2013 and 2014 that described her work. She told us that her involvement with the case began when some California detectives reached out to her, hoping she might be able to find some very old records. I can tell you in our area and, and working with different agencies, there's a lot of archive records that are in paper. And there's even now and again, you find some old um, video storage 
recordings and there's no longer any equipment to take that data and convert it to modern technology. And it's we at the Alachua County Sheriff's Office made a plan years ago that we would not destroy records. We found that it's surprising in working cold case investigations that the littlest bit of information, such as somebody was trespassed from a, a location at a date and time 20 years ago, well, that puts them in the vicinity of where the murder may have taken place or whether where some other crime took place. Or it talks about these two kids were hanging out together, getting into mischief. Well, you know, that report in and of itself is of no value to anybody. Nobody cares. But if it turns out that one of those kids has turned into a serial killer or or maybe just a car thief or any number of, of crime t- trends, then that information places them at that area and it helps you get to the bottom of what's going on and who's committing the crimes and and hopefully putting a stop to it. So we... We're still trying to figure out how to convert a lot of that paper. We probably still only have 20% of our old or archive records converted. But the real challenge is, is you don't know which one of those reports is going to be the valuable piece. So you pretty much need to figure out how to save it all. And then storage with that paper, I mean, paper takes up so much room. We have thousands of boxes now of archive records, and we have to pay to store them. We asked Brown to describe her role in connecting the Samuel Little in California with the Sam McDowell, who'd been acquitted for murder down in Florida. I received a phone call from a California detective, and um, at the time, he was telling me that he'd gotten a copy of a warrant affidavit on a on Sam, actually it was Samuel McDowell that was processed through our records, I believe. So he actually had a case number, but he said, this is all I've got. That is always sounds very helpful, but unfortunately in 30 years ago, paperwork and even 20 years ago, paperwork, they assign numbers pretty much right and left. And so when somebody would transfer those numbers into different systems, they wouldn't always give us the number that we need to find it. So I just asked him for any kind of information he could give me. And then because I've worked here so long, I had a really good advantage in that we know or I know how the the records are stored and how they were placed in off-site storage in our archival systems. And in the old days, that was a, a three-by-five card. And so they stored all those cards in order. And then from there, they got the computer technology that took those calls for service. And then they still were writing hand offense reports. So those offense reports would come to the Records Bureau to be stored and filed because obviously a patrol deputy riding around in a car can't keep a file cabinet. And so everybody in those days would take the old records and they'd send them to offsite. So knowing that every section sends their records off separately to off-site and that the records management people at that time didn't try to compile them together, I knew that there was probably some other sources that whoever did the searches just neglected to, to look for. 
So at that point, I just went through our archive records. Sure enough, I got lucky and it was still there and it was where it was supposed to be. If you know what you're looking for, they are predominantly in order. Did you know how big the case was when you were looking into it? No, no clue. I knew it turned out to be a big deal when the detectives came here and did some interviews um, with our detectives that had worked the case. And um, they came and they gave me a, a cup from the Los Angeles Police Department or a mug, and they um, were just very grateful and very appreciative and just said how much it had helped them. And they made a big deal with it to the sheriff and, you know, that that's pretty uncommon in records management. You're like, okay, you kind of play with paper all day and just do what you're supposed to do. And you don't really think much more about it other than it's the nature of the job. You want things in order. I, I work hard to get it right so that it so that it's just the way it's supposed to be. And I, I'm proud that we were able to help do something worthwhile and, and really help a detective get where they were going because this guy was really bad and and he should definitely not be out running around getting to do this to more people. It, it just really helped solidify and, and promote what we do trying to keep these records right for people. We have a cold case investigator that um, is very big on the old records as well and is often trying to find things. And so it, it just makes a difference and it helps. As Linda Brown told the Gainesville Sun, there were over 3,000 case files in storage, but she found the right ones. Then she managed to pinpoint hundreds of pages that brought Little's Florida crimes over 30 years in the past, back into the public consciousness. With her help, detectives were able to connect not only Florida victims, but other Southeastern cases too. Without Brown's work, our coverage this season would not be possible. But even with the information provided by Brown and so many others, there are still mysteries. The problem is that Samuel Little remembers a lot but not the details that make finding records easy. According to Texas Ranger James Holland, Little's not good with dates, or even decades. And Little also has trouble with names. There are many women whose names he doesn't remember, or he never knew. But investigators are searching another way, through Little's art. He spent the last few years drawing his victims. He draws them from what law enforcement has called his photographic memory, mostly portraits of Black women, though not all. In some portraits, women are crying, some smiling, all drawn in a style that shows some natural talent, but the pictures are hard to look at. Eyes and noses tend to be the crudest. Lips and necks and shoulders, those can be startlingly accurate. They're his favorite areas. He told author Jillian Lauren that when a woman touched her neck, it was like a sign, an invitation to kill. He remembered a little girl in his elementary school class who used to touch her neck. And he remembers a teacher whose hands would sometimes float to her throat. Both images excite him, even now. On some portraits, Lines are drawn across the victim's necks. 
Little doesn't do much to identify these women, not as individuals. They get nicknames or nothing at all. Tampa Dope Girl, Fort Myers Girl, Homestead Air Force Woman, Plant City Girl, Atlanta Victims he labeled Atlanta College and Atlanta Black. Like many others, they haven't been located. They are just pictures. There are so many pictures. The FBI has devoted a website to them, hopeful that friends or family of the mystery victims, the does, the uncorroborated victims, just might see. Little's crimes, they tended to unfold in a similar fashion. He'd often disable the victims with a single bare-knuckle punch to the head. He wanted to get to the point. A woman temporarily disabled in the back seat of his car, where he could use his strength and his weight to pin her so he could get a good grip. Little told writer Jillian Lauren about the experience. In fact, he told her about his very first victim, who he said touched her neck, supposedly giving him the sign as they both sat in a cheap diner. He said he remembered her fishnet stockings and how she crossed her legs, all the physicality. Samuel Little told Julian Lauren lots of things. He was usually up for a chat, but as Lauren wrote in her New York Magazine article, he is also mercurial. And according to the LA Times, he can shift into sudden violent rage without provocation. He doesn't like being challenged. He doesn't like being called a rapist. He doesn't like attempts to individualize his victims. A law enforcement officer we spoke to had a similar experience, that talking with Little was easy until they focused in on the victims. He didn't like that at all. But for the rest of this series, that's just what we'll do. Talk about the victims. State by state, all along the Southeast, We'll look at the confessions that don't have cases, at the Jane Doe's with no identities, Georgia and Arkansas, Mississippi, Florida, the cases that were solved that can build a timeline and tell us more about those that can't be closed, not yet. We'll start in Florida, the state where little could have been stopped if everything had fallen into place decades ago. Then we'll head out and across the Southeast following Little's trail. You'll hear from the killer himself, but also from families of victims, those working to close the unresolved cases, and even a teenager who traveled with Little while he committed some of the murders. And tell me where you met her. I met her in in a a, a nightclub in New Orleans. And while we were dancing, she said, uh, you want, you want to go riding after this, you know, after this party's over? We were on Highway 10 and uh, going toward Slide L. So I cut off, I took off the exit, went, and that sure enough was a road leading into the woods. <laughs> and we went in and parked. So we finally got to where we were going, and a bayou, a river, a little water thing. I grabbed my legs and pulled to the water. Mm-hmm. That's the only one that I ever killed by John. He was looking for individuals that he felt 
like would not be missed. Um, he was specifically targeting vulnerable, marginalized women. Many of them were sex workers. Some of them may have had substance abuse issues or been transient. My experience in working with some of the victims' families is that he was dead wrong. They were missed. They were very loved um, and their families were, were hurting and, and wanted to have answers but he was very good about um, how he would immediately leave town after he committed a crime. He did not stick around to wait to see uh, news stories, for example. Um, he was very transient himself. He was moving all over the country. Um, he had also, from my understanding, read detective magazines and been very interested as a child in um, crime. And so he was familiar with how to not leave a lot of evidence and strategically um, did that. Um, so, so I think that was a big part of why he, was, he flew under the radar for so long. He literally just left and um, didn't leave a trace. I'm, you know, I'm glad they caught Mr. Little. I remember one time a uh, porter asked me if I had something to say to Mr. Little, what would I say to him? And I told him, the only thing I would say to him that huh, I want you to feel what the, all, all of these women felt. But you know, like right now, if I see that man, I don't want to see him. I, I probably wouldn't do nothing to him, but I wouldn't want to see him. And from what I hear, the man don't have a conscience. We'd like to ask you now some questions in reference to some dead girls that uh, have shown up throughout a couple of states. In Ocala, in August, we found a body of a nude black female in the woods, right in here. We have reason to believe that she was picked up at a bar in Ocala and transported out there. Do you know anything about that at all? Okay. Has anybody told you that they had anything to do with that at all? Did you have anything to do with it? Okay. Were you with anybody when they picked up a black female at a bar? Okay. Were you with anybody when they when they strangled somebody? Okay. Has anybody told you that they strangled or killed somebody? Maybe. If they did, I don't know. If they did, would you tell me right now? Yes, sir. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B &B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. This season on the fall line, we're counting on you to help us highlight the open cases in our region. We'll share portraits and other photos on social media in the hopes that someone, somewhere, will recognize one of the Jane Doe victims or one of the unmatched confessions. 
Maybe you can help close a cold case and bring a family answers. If you have any information regarding the Jane Doe's and unmatched cases attributed to Sam Little, please visit tips.fbi.gov or call 800-CALL-FBI. If you would like to speak to a counselor regarding sexual assault, you can call Rain at call 800-656-HOPE or 800-656-4673 to be connected with a provider in your area. As for the fall line, we'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. Special thanks also to Brian Waters, who served as a fact checker for this series. If you'd like to suggest a Southeastern cold case for coverage, please visit thefalllinepodcast.com and click on case submissions. We are also taking national cases for a special season, planned for release sometime in 2021. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and engineered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Research assistants are Kim Fritz, Jessica Ann, Lex Weathers, and Brian Waters. Additional research by Haley Gray. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. Thanks for listening and supporting The Fall Line. We want to share a piece of news about another show that you might enjoy. Fall Line host Laura Norton and producer Maura Curry have launched a new independent podcast called One Strange Thing. It's a compact, immersive narrative show that explores mysterious local news stories from all over the United States about regular people, just like you and me, who have had extraordinary experiences that can't quite be explained. Please stay tuned for just a moment to hear the promo now, then head over to One Strange Thing and subscribe. You can find a link in our show notes. We all enjoy a little mystery. And on the new podcast, One Strange Thing, that's just what you'll get. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's news archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. These are bizarre events that unfolded in our country's local newspapers, but never made it much further than that. I'm Laura Norton. Join me on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about a class ring that disappeared on one continent and reappeared on another. And the ominous whistling that terrorized a young bride in Louisiana. And the chemical warfare once waged on a sleepy town in Illinois. And the mysterious hum that's rattling Anchorage, Alaska. And then there's the house in Atlanta that once dripped human blood. And that's just the start. No matter the place or the people, One Strange Thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Join us on September 8th to hear the first episode of One Strange Thing. 
You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.